You're listening to Longwoods Radio, your healthcare source for ideas, new policies, and best practices. The following is a Breakfast with the Chiefs session on March 25, 2008. Speaking is Dr. Michael Greer on the annual review of IM and IT in healthcare, the unvarnished version. Thanks, Anton. Um, so I, I'm. <clears throat> I find myself uh, in, in an unusual uh, uh, situation of being rather optimistic about uh, IM and IT in Canada, <laughs> which, which maybe will disappoint some of the people who come to hear me sort of complain and, uh, uh, <clears throat> and thrash some of the players in the business. Uh, but <clears throat> there have been some great things happening in the past year, uh, so I'll try to, uh, to highlight a couple of them. Uh, and then the other, the other piece that uh, uh, has been sort of, I guess, kind of creeping into consciousness is that there's some very uh, disruptive things on the horizon in terms of the e-health uh, space that are uh, very likely to challenge our fundamental assumptions about how the EHR will work and how e-health will progress. So I want to... Uh, take you through what some of those uh, some of those things are, uh, and uh, uh, perhaps speculate on 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 a little bit of their impact. But first, let's um, let's talk about some of the good news. Um, so this isn't uh, doing anything. There it is. Um, so first of all, in case um, in case anybody uh, had uh, any. Uh, uh, doubt about how difficult what we're doing. I found this little piece, which, which was interesting. The U.S. National Academy of Engineering, which has absolutely nothing to do with healthcare, listed the uh, 14 grand challenges of engineering in the 21st century, and and right up there with uh, uh, providing energy from nuclear fusion and reverse engineering the brain, advancing health informatics is on the list. Um, and uh, this, this quote was particularly poignant for me. There's now a consensus that a systematic approach to health informatics uh, can greatly enhance the quality and efficiency of medical care in the response to widespread public health emergencies. So you can see that there's, uh, uh, that there's a pretty broad consensus that this is a huge undertaking. And <clears throat> as much as, as I try to sort of, touch on this theme a couple of times during the talk, but as much as there's uh, estimates of how much it'll cost to create the electronic health record in Canada, and you hear numbers like seven billion or something like that thrown around, these numbers are uh, very small estimates of what it will take to put together a comprehensive information infrastructure for healthcare. We're probably talking about spending uh, in the order of 5% of, of total healthcare spending on an annual basis. I mean, that's the kind of numbers that one would expect from looking at other service industries who have a very heavy uh, and very intensive information requirement. The $7 billion doesn't even fill one year's uh, sort, of, sort of cost. Uh, and I hope that we'll talk about some of the things beyond electronic health records in the sort of more traditional sense uh, that, that still have to be addressed. So big news from just the last couple of months, um, Alberta Netcare and Capital Health Netcare in Edmonton uh, have merged. Uh, <clears throat> these were uh, uh, both based on the same platform, and they've now pulled them together into a single platform. And in January, there were approximately 10,000 unique active users on the two systems. And those, that, that group has now been brought together. So I'm not sure about this because very few people sort of post their, their uh, statistics about uh, utilization of systems, but I suspect that this is the largest EHR in Canada at the moment. Um, and about 30% of the active users are physicians. So the story here is an interesting one. Uh, back in in sort of spring of 2004, Edmonton, the Capital Health Region, 
started their electronic health record project. And you can see here the ascendant uh, sort of user numbers over time. Uh, and the province of Alberta, in its wisdom, realized that this platform was useful for the whole province. And so they contracted with uh, Capital Health to start a provincial version, which was called uh, Alberta NetCare. It was basically the same platform. And you can see the user numbers that have been uh, uh, growing uh, on Capital uh, Health NetCare. And then the two of them in January came together uh, toward the end of the month. So this number it will very likely be somewhere up here in February, but those statistics haven't been published yet. So, so you can see that, that uh, uh, you know, there's been just tremendous growth in, in the number of users of this system. The, the story, and I've told this story before at part of these, these breakfasts, the story here is that they created a very content-rich environment and then continued to invest in it, working to get more and more users on board. And they've been very focused on their user community and what they've been doing with the system. And those continued investments, including investments uh, from the province, uh, building on that successful platform, have, have built now a very interesting community uh, of, of people who are sharing this resource. I said that they keep very close tabs on what their users are looking at. This is, uh, this is one graph uh, that shows some of the things that, that people are looking at uh, on the system. This is one month's data uh, from, from January. Uh, the degree of detail that they have on what people are looking at uh, is, uh, is phenomenal. So they'll know down to individuals at certain hospitals what screens they're looking at, how frequently they're looking at them, et cetera. And that allows them then to compare what's happening in different hospitals and to be able to quickly tell that see, this hospital doesn't have a very good training program or this hospital uh, doesn't have uh, a certain sort of content online that would be helpful. So if we bring that content online, we'll bring more users online. This is very much the kind of strategy, this is an internet website type of strategy for bringing more eyeballs to the page and, and using that kind of an approach uh, to, to bring their users on board. The other interesting thing is that when you have an active, active user community and you're following this kind of information, the whole idea of a clinician uh, uh, focus group becomes obsolete. <clears throat> and this is one of the real challenges of starting a new, a new IT program, is you pull together 20 or 30 clinicians and you get their, their best advice on what to do. But the fact is, is that advice is never actually that good. Uh, these people get 10,000 opinions uh, on, on a monthly basis uh, as to what's of value on their system, and then they can then follow those statistics. It's a much better way to, to understand what, what is of value. Just to highlight a couple of things, um, this is uh, lab, lab test results and, and transcribed reports. Uh, the, the PACS images uh, is, a, is an interesting uh, number at about 5,000. I just want you to remember that that's relatively small uh, because I'm going to look at some Toronto information in a minute. Um, and then the pharmacy information network, um, you can see that there's a very healthy uh, utilization of that, of that system. Uh, I've been critical of this project in the past as being one that, uh, that wasn't very successful. And in fact, they've doggedly continued to, uh, to, get, this, uh, to get this working and, and useful to clinicians. And I think this shows that... Uh, uh, that they're having some good success. This is uh, an important story as well because we've had situations where, uh, uh, certainly in, in province of Ontario, where we've invested in systems that are not being used and haven't been very successful. And there's, there's a tendency to quickly write these investments off as being a massive failure. And that's not smart. 
uh, <clears throat> the game should be to bring in uh, bring some users into the game, and as soon as the users start to drive the development and modification of these systems, you see uh, you see some some uh, uh, some improvement in in the use and utilization of that of that type of thing. Uh, so that's that's a uh, uh, a great news story. Oh, I'm going to do it too far. So, what's the Toronto equivalent? Well, uh, the, the the closest we have is um, uh, is is patient results online, which is something that the Sims Group uh, has been has been working on. You can see the organizations that are contributing to this and uh, the organizations that are accessing this information. And <clears throat> this has also been a growing story um, over time. This is the unique users per month uh, on, uh, on the system up until the most, most recent month. Uh, uh, although this is showing the right trend line and is, is, definitely, uh, is definitely good news, um, uh, one would hope for another zero on each of these uh, numbers <clears throat> in order to have anything close to rivaling the Edmonton situation. This highlights a couple of things that are important to know. Uh, first of all, it's a lot easier for Edmonton to pull something like this off, uh, uh, not because of oil money, by the way, but, but because, <clears throat> because they have a single governance structure, and so they can have a single IT department, and there's no debates about standards or what technology or whether it's going to be .NET or WebSphere or what kind of platform it's going to be on. Um, <clears throat> and so Edmonton's been able to move uh, much more quickly. This is a tribute to a whole bunch of uh, organizations that have voluntarily come together to start uh, to start building this uh, this this capability, um, <clears throat> the uh, uh, the the comment about oil money is an important one. Uh, uh, people would die to know how little Edmonton spends and and on their uh, on their EHR uh, agenda. Uh, <clears throat> you know they're they're being very careful about how they spend money and and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, then the equivalent numbers for similar things in Toronto do add a zero on the end of, of the numbers. Like it's a total order of magnitude difference in cost to mount these things in a situation where you've got very complex governance structures around the IT and, and a lot of different legacy systems to have to, uh, to, have to deal with. But such is the situation in... Uh, in Toronto, and I, I, when I see Matt came in, you were already introduced, Matt, before you arrived by Anton. And uh, uh, <clears throat> I think it's apropos, given this situation, that they put a CIO in charge of the Toronto Central Inn, uh, a former CIO. So, uh, uh, so this is a big challenge yet to, uh, yet to deal with. This thing is not uh, very... Uh, this there I go. Okay, and um, uh, the other point to make is that um, it's not just users, but it's the content that uh, drives them to to the site, and that you know adding new information uh, to to the platform not only causes more users to come to it, but causes the users that do come to it to use it more frequently. Now, this is similar information. Uh, about the types of reports that are accessed uh, on the system. So again, I hope you're seeing sort of best practice in action here, uh, looking at what the users are doing, what they're, how they're using it, and the frequency is critically important to managing these, these systems. Uh, note that the, uh, the imaging numbers are, are much uh, higher uh, in Toronto than, than they are in Edmonton as a proportion of the total. Uh, lab tests still feature pretty highly. Uh, transcribed notes, our operative notes, procedure notes, progress notes, etc., 
uh, are relatively smaller compared to, compared to the Edmonton situation. I don't really know why this is. I suspect that uh, there's less of this content available on this system than exists in the Edmonton situation. But again, when you have these kinds of statistics, uh, it gives you a great opportunity to, uh, to try to ask why is the utilization behavior different in the two situations. So when you start to get this kind of data, again, it speaks to issues of design and where we might want to invest funds uh, to, to uh, expand these systems. Um, now, before we get too uh, optimistic, uh, uh, this is the uh, uh, National Physician Survey from 2007. Uh, and what it's showing, if you just look down here um, in the legend, it shows what the doctors respond, the respondents to this survey said was their primary record-keeping system, whether it was paper, combination of paper and electronic, or electronic only. Uh, and you can see for the Canadian situation, uh, really a 10% uptake overall uh, uh, for, for totally electronic records. About 25% are using some form of, of electronic records. Uh, woefully behind uh, uh, a whole series of European countries who, who have managed to get, to get way ahead of the game on this. Uh, uh, and you can... You can see various, month, uh, various uh, provincial uh, statistics here. Uh, Ontario very close to the national average. Alberta clearly uh, in the lead on, on this front as well. <clears throat> I can't move on from this to make one other uh, optimistic remark. Um, uh, I have to say that, that, that when I look at the Edmonton situation, one of the things that has been uh, critically important in their success has been the uh, ability of the province and some of the provider organizations to work together uh, to accomplish things. And, and their uh, uh, sharing of funding and technology and sharing of the workload. And <clears throat> for the first time, uh, I've seen that uh, spirit of cooperation begin to uh, flourish in Ontario. And I have to be very complimentary to what Gail Peach has been doing. Uh, she's been in the role in a short time, and she's done a couple of things that, that are critically important. One is that she's tied the e-health strategy to a clinical agenda uh, around chronic disease and, and, and drug patient safety in, in, in prescriptions, uh, which is uh, uh, a, a, a very welcome uh, development. And, and, the second, uh, and the second piece uh, is that she has been working, uh, I think, very effectively with those players in the field who have a significant track record of success uh, in this space. And uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm just delighted to see that this is, um, we seem to be updating our software on the fly here. <clears throat> is it? Um, so, uh, 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 so I'm I'm very optimistic that um, uh, despite some of the challenges in Ontario with its complexity and diversity of systems, uh, that uh, that Gail will be able to break through some of that and start to see some some major uh, uh, success in the province. So. Um, uh, let's talk about uh, some, some disruptive things that are happening. Uh, I was at the HIMSS conference uh, in, in Orlando of last month and uh, <clears throat> was, was interested in some of the new things that are, that are coming on the, on the scene. And I was reminded of this book uh, by Clayton Christensen, which was published in, in 1997. So it's almost uh, uh, it's a little more than 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> it talked about a phenomenon of, of, of what he described as disruptive technologies. Uh, and the, the, the key definition is the one at the bottom here. Uh, technologies that begin with a weak product performance and have fringe features, usually new, 
that customers in smaller markets value. So let me let me try to explain this a little bit uh, a little bit more a little bit more clearly. This is a diagram that he uses from his book, and what he what he postulates is that uh, for any market there is is sort of a performance range which the customer desires. They won't accept performance lower than a certain certain point, and they won't pay for performance above a certain point. So you could think of things like uh, the amount of storage on your PC or on your uh, on your iPod uh, as a great example. People won't accept anything below a certain point, but there's a certain top end that you know how many songs can you actually put on one of these things. Uh, so so there is there is a, a range. Now a disruptive technology is is a new technology that is unable to meet uh, to fall somewhere in this in this uh, zone. So it's below it functions below the minimum performance. So <clears throat> um, so take for example uh, a great example from the IT world was when flash memories were introduced. Uh, they didn't work very well and and uh, they lost they, initially they when you turned the power off they lost their 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 uh, memory and that sort of thing so they were used in in small applications in toys and stuff like that and they really weren't very useful in a in a sort of computer setting but what often happens is that they develop in a very different market that has a very different price point and as they develop that technology and it improves over time it starts to get to the point where it can start to compete at the bottom end of the uh, uh, of, of this sort of market curve. And over time, um, the, uh, this product sort of invades and overtakes uh, the existing product market. So other examples take, take in, the, in the sort of software business, if you look at Microsoft's history, Microsoft has been very good at staying, uh, you know, being sort of the best in class in in the office market and and in the uh, in the uh, operating system market, uh, but they've had a number of things that have uh, sort of been in the almost the toy space, okay, which have threatened to subsequently invade into their into their market. So a great example of that was the internet, which Bill Gates sort of missed the significance of the internet and Internet Explorer, which now has become fundamentally part of the operating system of a, of, of, of a machine. But Netscape was just such an invader, okay? And he, he and his company needed to spend untold billions of dollars to, to, fight, that, to fight that off uh, and actually just take it over. Um, and now we see Google doing a similar type of thing with their sort of distributed office products. And again, the first time that these products come on the market, they're dismissed as being uh, poorly, you know, not very functional, not very useful, and usually appeal to a market different from the primary market that, uh, that, that the company has relied upon. But in that sort of relatively protected environment, it develops better functionality and features, and most importantly, a very low price point, which then gives it enough bulk to then uh, invade into, into, this, into this larger market. So why am I talking about all of this stuff? Uh, there seem to be a number of e-health uh, things that are happening at the moment that are <clears throat> very likely to completely overtake our current understanding of the electronic health record and the architectures that we've been, uh, we've been playing with over the last five years. So <clears throat> while we hear that the EHR is going to take five years or it's going to take 10 years and you hear all kinds of different predictions about it, um, uh, in the way that we've conceived it at the moment, I suspect it will never happen, that it'll be completely overtaken by a different set of models and so let me just throw out some things that are challenging uh, that, that, that current model. Um, oh, let me, just, uh, let me just finish up on the disruptive piece just to add 
add a couple of points. I think I've touched on those. But this is an important point here, is that by the time the disruptive technology meets that minimum performance, the leading players aren't able to catch up and will ultimately lose positions of leadership. So again, some of the companies, I hear people say things like, oh, well, gee, we're going to buy Cerner and we're going to buy Epic because you can't go wrong with those companies. Like, they're the leading market share. And uh, I said that, I think I said that to Jeff Lozon in the early 90s when I said, word perfect has got to be the standard at St. Mike's. <clears throat> it's the leading the leading market share, it, it has an unassailable position in, in the market. Uh, uh, I learned the hard way on that one. Um, so while we're talking about Microsoft, they launched their Amalga Hospital Information System at HIMSS. Now, you may not have heard much about this because they're focusing this on developing markets. It will not be marketed uh, in, in North America uh, or Europe. Uh, complete electronic medical record. Uh, so it's got all the sort of clinical stuff as well as finance and, and uh, uh, some of the back office uh, types of systems, all built on scalable Microsoft technology. Uh, so a very modular uh, kind of architecture built on these uh, more modern platforms. Now, I saw this being very interesting. I think they're probably marketing it in developing uh, uh, in developing uh, economies rather than uh, in in the G7, <clears throat> because the system would not meet the discerning uh, sort of requirements of North American customers at this stage. The Cerners and the Epics probably have, and I don't know this, I'm just I'm speculating, probably have a much better uh, user interface and a better developed uh, environment. So they're going to sell uh, to, to, to these other players. They're going to work in a much lower priced, uh, a lower cost tolerant environment uh, where the Cerners and the Epics can't compete because they're too high cost. Okay? So... But you look at, at, at the architecture of how this has been built, and the Cerners and the Epics of the world can, o can only dream of having something like this. They've got this huge legacy uh, sort of infrastructure behind them, which is the basis of their very rich uh, functionality, but it's also the basis of, of a, a relatively slow and expensive response time in terms of of, of development and, and, and re-architecting their platform as, as, as requirements evolve. So I'm, a, I'm simply asking a question as to whether this is an example of the beginning of a disruptive strategy for, for Microsoft to spend the next number of years developing uh, this product uh, to get it to a point where it meets the minimum requirements of the North American market and then bring it, bring it onshore. I have no clue if that's what they're doing. I just wonder if that's, if that's what the agenda is. The other thing to point out is that when you look at the very best uh, players in the health informatics market uh, and how much they're spending on research and development on their products, it's usually in the neighborhood of of a couple of hundred million dollars a year. Not, not much, there's not many companies that are able to mount an R&D effort that's much larger than that. Uh, Cerner, which is one of the largest companies, I think their annual revenues are about $2 billion. And I think their R&D budget is somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 million uh, a year. So that, that's sort of one of the leading, leading players in the market. And they have, they have a very good product. To a company like Google or Microsoft, two or three hundred million dollars a year is a very small number. So Microsoft decided it wanted to be in the gaming business, and it, it spent billions of dollars on their Xbox strategy to be able to tackle that particular market. Given that healthcare is, is somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 10 to 15 percent, certainly 15, 16 percent of the GDP in the United States, that seems to me to be a very large market worthy of some investment to go after. 
When a company like Microsoft does something like this, you don't take it lightly in terms of their, their agenda. This company does not think small. Uh, so <clears throat> just let's, let's, next few years, I'll revisit this and we'll see, we'll see what's happening. Um, now, I'll spend a few minutes talking about personal health records. Personal health records are exactly the, the type of disruptive uh, kind of uh, technology idea uh, that, that Christensen was talking about. Uh, uh, because they're, they're very much in their infancy, and most of them aren't very impressive. So they're very easy to dismiss. Uh, most of them are in the, in the kind of toys category uh, and sort of people playing with them at home on, on, uh, on, on the Internet. Um, and it's all about facilitating an individual's access uh, to personal health information. Uh, so, uh, so a report for, for the U.S. National Coordinator for Health uh, inf information technology uh, uh, came to these uh, uh, observations uh, that the market's relatively immature and lacks an obvious technological or market leader. In fact, there's a whole bunch of players in this space, and they're all using different approaches to try to, to, try to tackle it. Very typical for a nascent uh, new sort of product. Everybody's jumping into it, and everybody's using different approaches to, uh, to deal with it. Uh, and they can be standalone, they can be tied to other sources of health information, or they can be integrated with, with uh, several sources of healthcare data. So let me just share with you some of the players uh, uh, in the space. Uh, uh, Adam Guy is one of the engineers at, at Courtyard, uh, put together this little diagram uh, to explain this to me, <laughs> and I thought, I thought it was useful to share with you. Uh, and he, he roughly grouped the, the different types of, of PHRs into, into three categories, uh, tethered and, and uh, you know, to an organization, untethered and, and tied to a platform, some kind of a, uh, a network server, and untethered and tied to some kind of a portable technology so you can carry your health information on a key or something like that. Um, for this, oops, that wasn't what I meant to push. For this whole slide, this, this is sort of the direction of information flow. So, uh, so you've got, you've got the, the, the PHR in this example tied to a healthcare payer or provider who wants to give the consumer access to some of their record information. So that's a fairly simple one. Uh, so that would be an example would be like a hospital wanting their patients to be able to see their lab results or something of that nature. In this situation, you've got the healthcare provider over here, okay? So the healthcare provider provides information either to the consumer or directly into the PHR through some kind of an interface. And the PHR is some third-party vendor. So it's some totally set, it's not the healthcare provider, it's some other organization that is acting as the uh, 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 host for, for, for that information. And then the healthcare provider can access this information with, with appropriate permissions. And the security and privacy approaches to this are all over the map. Again, there's no standards yet. The third type uh, is very similar to this, except that the... Uh, the information is put on a portable uh, medium, which then uh, goes, uh, goes back to the healthcare provider. So uh, these are just a few examples of, of organizations that, uh, that are doing this. So the type one uh, uh, PHR, you can see the Department of Veterans Affairs has set up uh, a... Uh, uh, a website for their uh, for their clients, um, and you can see it offers quite a bit. So, benefits administration is a key element in the U.S. Uh, context. A lot of their PHRs have something to do with managing your healthcare account, 
uh, from a business perspective. You can see there's also prescription refills, chronic disease management tools, um, and then their agenda is to expand to looking at appointments, financial information, and parts of the medical record. Cleveland Clinic has been doing something uh, they call MyChart, uh, very similar types of functions. MyMedicare, which is the CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, so this is really the government payer, uh, setting this up for people to be able to look at their claims and their status, eligibility, et cetera, uh, uh, information on prescription drug plans, and that they can modify their drug list and pharmacy information. So there is some interaction with the patient here uh, and that they can order summary notes. So that's the type one. Type two, uh, this is another place where Microsoft has, has uh, waded in, as well as Google. Uh, they've both announced measures in, in the last year or so. Uh, and then this uh, consortium, they call themselves DOSIA, of, of very large employers who uh, are putting together a system for all of their uh, employees. Uh, so very similar types of things. Um, you can see medications, tests, results, um, history information. This is the interesting part. Practitioners will have to update this in order to maintain their preferred provider status. So you do it or you don't get paid. Uh, that's fairly, uh, fairly strong uh, incentive to, to participate. The Microsoft and Google pieces, I, I had a look at them at HIMSS, and <clears throat> they were distinctly unimpressive. Um, uh, and, and I think that's what makes them so interesting, is that they're very easy to dismiss initially. Um, they're essentially stores where you can put uh, information. And I, I, I say information as opposed to clinical information. They could really be any kind of, any kind of information. Um, and they have an API which allows developers to do all kinds of things with it. So it's very much a platform as opposed to an application uh, sort of ready for use. It, it can be used right away, but it just shows, inf there's no real user interface to speak of. It's kind of a list of documents and a list of results, which you can order sort of chronologically or alphabetically or that sort of thing. So it's, when I look at <clears throat> how much time has been spent over the last 20 years, figuring out how to present clinical information to practitioners so that it's, it's useful, it's presented in a useful way, and then I look at this, it's, it's, it's almost going back to a paper chart where there's a document, which is each page, uh, that's, that's sort of put together in the chart. But the fact that they've set this up in a way that uh, allows other vendors to use the platform to add other things to it, uh, makes it makes it a very interesting, uh, very interesting story. I suspect that many people will do the same thing that I did, They'll look at it and say, there's nothing here really, uh, so I'm not going to worry about it. Uh, and again, these two companies don't have a reputation for doing frivolous things uh, and then not, uh, not, not following up on it. Uh, so very interesting to see how this, how this will, will, will evolve. Uh, and then there's, there's, there's a couple of uh, organizations that are doing things that are more sort of USB type, you know, put, put your health information on a USB, carry it in your pocket, and you can give it to, to, to any clinician. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, as you can imagine, the challenge is getting this information from the, the uh, provider organization to actually get it uh, to get it onto this onto this platform, but uh, this is a selection of, a, of of three. There are many many more of these, uh, and especially in the type one category, you have a huge number of hospitals and organizations. I think Grand River, uh, I think UHN, uh, 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 Sunnybrook, uh, and I'm probably missing uh, a number of others have done uh, elements of this already in the, in the sort of tethered uh, category. 
So, uh, not sure where this is going exactly, but uh, the potential to capture the baby boomers into the uh, electronic health record business uh, and to have them start to drive the way this develops uh, is, uh, is, I think, a, uh, uh, a very compelling story. And when we look at our EHR architectures at the moment, in terms of how we're setting things up, this isn't really anywhere on the radar screen at all. And this may end up being the driving uh, force for the whole, for the whole space. Um, I think I've covered that already. <clears throat> Let's move into another sort of disruptive place. Uh, uh, and this is in the device manufacturers space. And more and more of medical devices are actually uh, equipped with computer technology. This is something that, uh, that uh, the company Medtronic, which uh, builds pacemakers and other implantable devices, uh, has been pursuing for a couple of years. It's called the CareLink Network. And what they've done is they've equipped their, uh, uh, their pacemakers, their implantable defibrillators, and, and some of their other products with wireless technology, which allows them to be interrogated, as they call it, uh, from a, uh, an appliance uh, which uh, they often put by the bedside, and allows telemetry to be uploaded uh, and then sent over the Internet to a central database for analysis and for clinical alert purposes to be communicated back to physicians. So uh, these little uh, devices uh, uh, are, are actually quite sophisticated now. Uh, so implantable defibrillators, uh, this, this is an interesting uh, uh, thing because of something called Optival, which I'll come to in a second, and, and pacemakers. You've heard of these things before, but Optival is an interesting uh, uh, thing. It, it, it actually measures transthoracic impedance. Uh, and so measures the amount of fluid that's building up in the lungs. Before the patient becomes symptomatic, the system will alert them that their fluid status is getting out of balance. and We can avoid uh, an episode of congestive heart failure as a result of, of, of this kind of information. Now, the reason that this is so interesting, uh, and, and, and also the, you know, the pacemakers... Um, and implantable defibrillators keep track of rhythm disturbances as well, which, which is uploaded. Obviously, these are early warning systems uh, that are now being built into these therapeutic devices. So all these devices are implanted for therapeutic reasons. They can help the patient uh, to regulate their rhythm uh, uh, more closely. But the, the really interesting element of this is what happens when we start marketing devices that are purely diagnostic in function. So you could imagine a product uh, that is not marketed today, but you could imagine a product that is just this. So everybody with congestive heart failure has one of these devices implanted, which allows us to monitor them constantly. And rather than having a $20,000 hospitalization in the ICU to clear out their lungs, uh, that we could just phone them at home and say, you know, double your Lasix uh, pill today, and uh, that'll avoid you getting into trouble. And these are very real uh, uh, possibilities that are coming. Again, if you look at our EHR architectures, this type of stuff does not appear anywhere. Uh, and <clears throat> this is... Um, uh, this is, uh, Medtronic gave me this information, which I very much appreciate. Uh, looking at how many patients are now uh, part of their CareLink network and are regularly uploading clinical telemetry to their, to their data centers. There's one in Chicago and one in, in Europe. And you can see that they're almost at a quarter of a million people now regularly uh, monitored through this through this approach, uh, <clears throat> but when you look at uh, uh, the number of people, this is Canadian data now, 
that could benefit from these types of technologies, from this type of monitoring. You've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 people with congestive heart failure, somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 with rhythm disease. All of a sudden, you're talking about very large components of, of the population. And by the way, very large components of the population at most interest to us as, as practitioners because these are the people that use the system uh, more than average. Uh, so let's, I'm just going to keep moving through sort of disruptive forces. Uh, <clears throat> this is uh, Brian Postel's uh, report on, on wait times. There was a little piece in there that, that uh, hasn't had a lot of attention. Uh, is he, he talks about many industries and businesses using queuing theory and industrial practices to streamline their processes, uh, and that this is rare in healthcare. We've not sufficiently exploited the academic resources available to us from business management schools or industrial engineering. Um, so, and then he also talks about this concept of surge capacity to be able to essentially tie supply of services to demand more effectively to be able to get rid of wait lists. Well, I have very bad news for all of us in the healthcare system, and, and I'll try to back it up. Uh, in a second. And the bad news is, is that the wait times that we have in our system are whatever we choose them to be. And many of our wait times, uh, <clears throat> and I say this at, uh, with some nervousness given that the wait time czar is in the audience, but <clears throat> many of the wait times that we have in our system are stable. They're not getting longer and they're not getting shorter. And basic sort of understanding of queuing theory tells you that our supply of services and the demand for those services is in perfect balance. If the wait list isn't changing in length, then we're in perfect balance. So then why do we maintain that long waiting list? I mean, there's no real reason to just maintain that long waiting list. It just stays stable like that for, for ages and ages. And it just shows that we don't really understand well some of these issues uh, uh, about queuing theory, industrial engineering, surge capacity, etc. And there's a really interesting uh, article in Healthcare Policy just on this. Patrick and Putterman uh, uh, from uh, 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 from BC uh, looked at this, and uh, they looked at scheduling uh, algorithms and how we decide to uh, to to schedule our patients. I encourage you to read the paper, uh, but they talk about the complexity of, of doing scheduling when we've got patients categorized into priority classes with different service time targets, multiple equipment, different courses of treatment, uh, with multiple events during that treatment, uh, and resources spread across a wide geographic region. So who do we ask to come up with the scheduling algorithms for our healthcare system. We all know that the, the czars of scheduling are in fact the clerical people that answer the phones and the secretaries that, that, that do all the work. And they do this without any tools whatsoever. So we get what we get as a result of that uh, design feature of the system. They put together a, a a very simple um, sort of scheduling algorithm for ensuring that nobody exceeds the wait time target. Uh, uh, <clears throat> and um, uh, you can read this, it's, it's very simple. My slides will be available later if you want to, uh, if you want to pour, d dive into this in more detail. But this is the important point. Research shows that it's never advisable to book patients beyond their wait time target Doing so does not avoid the need for overtime. Instead, it just delays when it's needed. Optimal scheduling policy remains optimal regardless of the number of priority classes, the specific wait time targets, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the, the, the gist of this is that we're not actually managing our resources very well. We, we try to schedule patients in a very static way. We decide that somebody is sort of slotted in for surgery in advance. And, and then we just sort of take what comes after that, and we make no effort to try to coordinate 
resource allocation across different parts of the system. So I was struck to think about, well, how does the airline industry do this? Um, and there's a very interesting paper on dynamic airline scheduling uh, that, uh, <clears throat> that came out of uh, uh, MIT uh, uh, now almost two years ago. And just look, looking at uh, uh, how to do this, there were some really interesting uh, 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 points that, that came out in this paper. Uh, demand forecast quality for a particular date improves as the date approaches. So, so I started looking at that, and I was thinking about my days as a, you know, in, opera, in hospital operations, and I was thinking, well, how much did I think about the demand that my organization or my department or my hospital was going to be facing two weeks out from where I was, or four weeks out, or six weeks out? In fact, as a COO, had no visibility at all as at an organizational level as to what kind of demand for services I would be facing at some point in the future. We have very little future orientation in healthcare because we've convinced ourselves that the emergency cases and that sort of thing make things entirely unpredictable. If you want to talk about unpredictability, airlines face this constantly with weather, as obviously a very big issue, uh, and then equipment failures and that sort of thing. So uh, very interesting statistics looking at Air Canada and WestJet and their load factors. Now load factor is the percentage of their seats that they fly that are filled with a living, breathing, and most importantly paying passenger <clears throat> And you can see that they've been setting uh, records uh, year after year after year, if you've been reading about what, what they've been doing. And it's because they've been doing very dynamic uh, scheduling in advance and load balancing across the various parts, parts of their system. This is a screen uh, that I face uh, on a weekly basis. Um, <clears throat> so... This is looking at Air Canada's, this is Air Canada's website and how they manage flights. Uh, this is uh, Toronto to New York. And you can see the various sort of fare classes here. If you look across the top, you can find out which day has the lowest price. And then, of course, you can see uh, sort of the price differences. Now, these are the same, same planes going between the same two points. And if you travel at... 1.30 that day, you pay 3.39, and if you travel at 2.30, you pay 5.97. Now, you look at that, and you know your immediate reaction is, well, why would it be such a huge difference in price, you know, $250 difference between those between one hour difference in flying time? Well, the obvious answer, of course, and then of course, God help you if you're waiting until 4.30. Um, <clears throat> And the obvious answer is, is this is almost a full plane, right? They're selling the last couple of seats on that plane. This plane has lots of space left on it, okay? So what they're doing, they're not trying to give you a bargain in this website. What they're trying to do, they're trying to put, push the flexible people to the low-load airplanes and the people who are you know, stuck because of meetings or schedules or that sort of thing who are probably not very price sensitive to go onto the, uh, onto the more expensive planes. And they've been very effective at managing this and improving their load factors and their profitability. And both airlines have actually been quite profitable the last few years, despite record high oil prices, which is actually quite, quite impressive. So <clears throat> the, their ability to, to do this, and by the way, this is completely dynamic. If you log into the same screen tomorrow, the prices will be different, okay? And, this, and the day after and the day after. So this is real-time changes in, in, in their pricing based on their load predictions. But they also do other things. They will swap out equipment. Have you ever noticed that... that <clears throat> 
a lot of planes have business class that goes one, two, three, four, five, six, and then the first next seat is 12. Have you ever wondered why they skip those intervening seat numbers? And the reason that they do that is <clears throat> so that they can actually take out a small plane and put in a big plane, and everybody who's already been assigned a seat number, that seat number is still valid, but then there's other, so they don't have to renumber any of the seats. So the planes are standard to be able to swap in and out. So <clears throat> when was the last time that we planned for uh, overtime in an operating room two weeks in advance? I mean, we don't do that. That is not something that, you know, oh, gee, we're, gonna, we're expecting a surge in requirement for something. Rather than doing that kind of flexible uh, allocation of resources, we let a waiting list sort of build up behind us. Okay? There's no need for that to happen. Now, yeah, this thing's running out of battery, too, so I may get stuck somewhere. Um, oh, I am on board time. Okay, so, um, uh, so this, this is an example of real data, just, just to give you an example of, of beds occupied uh, in an orthopedic unit uh, uh, over, over a, uh, a period of weeks. Um, it's hard to see the numbers at the bottom. Showing the number of occupied beds and showing that if you just allow the secretaries to, to schedule the ORs uh, on, a, on an ad hoc basis, uh, that you can you, you get the result on the left, uh, and if you use an algorithm for scheduling those patients to try to minimize the fluctuation in requirements, you get the result uh, on the right. You can see this is exactly the same patient volume and exactly the same length of stay for the cases. This is just changing the order in which the cases are done. Okay, you can see that. The, you see the top red line there comes down significantly in terms of the total number of beds that one requires. It allows you to balance load uh, over, uh, over time. Now, given that I've gone way over, over my time and I've got two other things to talk about, uh, <clears throat> you're gonna have to, I'm going to have to leave you to look at, 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 uh, at the remainder of the slides, uh, but let me just just uh, point out the two things that I wanted to talk about. One of them is that jo Joseph Durand died uh, just, just uh, 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 in February, who was the Six Sigma guru. And uh, his institute uh, estimated that 30% of all direct healthcare outlays are the result of poor quality care. Uh, uh, most people in the industry don't really believe this to be true. Uh, and uh, uh, even if it isn't 30%, it's a large number. Uh, I actually do believe it to be true. But um, uh, the opportunities are huge. And we need to build our information systems to be able to, to do this. There's a few slides here on, on, uh, on, on this, this issue. And I'm just going to skip through them. Um, and I'll just end with uh, a couple of concluding remarks. I think we're going to have to rethink our EHR agenda as a result, as a result of some of these new events that are, are, are starting to wash across the business. We have new entrants uh, from the software perspective. We have new users being our patients with the, the, the PHRs. We have new players in the device manufacturers that are coming to the table and building big databases of clinical information. We have new needs, so the dynamic scheduling issue, uh, and new industry developments. And, and I'm sorry that I wasn't able to talk about this definition of quality, but there's, uh, there's a couple of references in here that you might want to look at. Um, in the end, this becomes a battle for users. Uh, <clears throat> content is what attracts users to systems uh, more than functionality. It's an important thing to to remember, uh, they come for the data as opposed to the, to the fancy screens. And the other thing is uh, that borders don't exist in this, in this kind of game. Uh, 
And this, this is probably the type of force that will start to globalize the health industry because people will go where the, where the quality leads them. Uh, so with that, let me stop, Anton. I'm sorry that I've gone a little bit over time, but... Okay. Uh, we'll thank Michael with a donation going to Ryerson, uh, where Michael's been very active and his father was active, and we thank Michael for coming. And Breakfast with the Chiefs will resume next September. Thank you for coming. This has been Longwoods Radio. Thanks for listening.